everybody. Welcome back to the NFL History Podcast. I am your host, Caleb, and today I'm joined by Marcus and Tony. How are you guys doing today? Good. Doing good. How about you? I'm doing good. I'm really excited for this episode. Uh, We just finished up our merger series with our last episode, and so now we're moving into a different type of episode. We're going to be talking about three people that we found interesting. Uh, I'm going to be talking about one. Tony will be talking about one. Marcus will be talking about one. And we'll each take some time, talk about the person that we researched, and we'll go from there. So it's a triple biography episode this time. So the three people we're going to be talking about for this episode are George Allen, Jim McMahon, and Carl Banks. So we'll go ahead and get started with George Allen, who is the person that I researched. Um, George Allen is a coach. He coached in the NFL for about 10 seasons. He's a Hall of Fame coach. He actually has one of the highest winning percentages of coaches in the Hall of Fame. I think he's third behind uh, John Madden and Vince Lombardi. Wow. So George Allen was born in Detroit in 1922. He, in high school, he lettered in three different sports, football, basketball, and track. And he also had a perfect attendance record while he was in high school. After high school, he joined the Navy during World War II. And after World War II, he was then able to get a bachelor's degree in teaching and a master's degree in physical education using some of those VA benefits that came about after World War II. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of a funny story about George Allen. When In 1944, he was in the Navy, and he was on duty at Princeton College. At some point, he had heard that Albert Einstein was like an expert checkers player. And George Allen really liked to play checkers, so he decided that he was going to go to Albert Einstein's house because he lived close to Princeton and challenge him to a game of checkers. So he took one of his other Navy friends. They walked to Albert Einstein's house. They knocked on the door. Albert Einstein came to the door. And George Allen said, Hi, I would like to play you in checkers. Now, as you might guess, Albert Einstein's like, "Uh, Who are you? (laughs) Why would I want to play checkers with you? But not only was it weird because George Allen was a complete stranger just knocking on his door, but Albert Einstein didn't even like checkers. <laughs> oh, wow. so, <laughs> so wherever George Allen had heard that Einstein did like checkers, it was wrong. And George Allen, even though Einstein was kept on you know, saying no, 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 George Allen kept on persisting and Albert Einstein's like, fine. Let's play a game. And then Albert Einstein asked, did you bring a board? Because Albert Einstein didn't have a board because he didn't <laughs> like playing checkers. George Allen did not have a board with him, but he was upset because he had thought about bringing a board. Hmm. But he didn't want to be like embarrassed or have people like judge him for carrying a checkers board around with him as he walked over to the house. So he decided not to bring it. Anyway, he didn't play, obviously, because there was no checkerboard to play with. He left, and he decided that from that point on, he would not 
let other people judge him for things that he did or didn't want to let other what he thought other people would think of him determine what he did he would never life. not carry a checkerboard around again exactly <laughs> <laughs> so after he graduated with his master's degree in physical education in 1947 um, in 1948 he got his first coaching job at Morningside College in Iowa he coached there for three years he moved, he went to Whittier College in California he coached there for six years in both places he ended with a winning record after those nine years of college coaching, he got his first NFL job in 1957. He was working with the Los Angeles Rams um, under Sid Gilman, who was the head coach at the time. Sid Gilman and George Allen didn't really get along. There was a lot of ownership trouble at the time. And so George Allen was fired after just one year uh, being an assistant with the Rams. So he was kind of hanging out for a little bit, didn't really know what to do couldn't really find a job and then George Hallis who was the owner and the coach of the Chicago Bears got a hold of George Allen and asked him to come be an assistant for the Chicago Bears he was initially hired to be a team scout against the Rams right mm-hmm. makes sense yeah so he would kind of tell them what their strategies were and stuff so they could better plan for the Rams when they played him. But he, his responsibilities kind of grew over time. He started doing working in personnel a little bit uh, with the draft and stuff. He actually helped draft some Hall of Famers like Mike Ditka, Dick Buckus for the Bears. Right. Um, so he was a defensive assistant at the time. He learned a lot. And in 1962, he was promoted to what would now be called the defensive coordinator. Basically, you know, he just ran the defense. It wasn't called that back in the day, but that's what he was doing. What was it called back then? Just like defensive coach or defensive assistant. Mm -hmm. But like I said, it's the same as being the defensive coordinator. Right. So that was in 1962. And over the next couple years, he helped really make that Chicago defense like really good. And they won the championship. The Bears won the NFL championship in 1963, you know, on the strength of their defense. And the players actually voted to give George Allen the game ball after the NFL championship. That's pretty cool. Yeah. For the next couple of years, he still worked for the Bears, but he was getting a lot of attention for head coaching jobs around the league. But George Hallis had promised George Allen that when... Hallis retired, George Allen would be the new head coach for the Chicago Bears. So he was kind of waiting around for that. Uh, 1966 came around, so a few years after they had won the NFL championship, and George Hallis really did not show any signs of retiring. And George Allen was getting kind of impatient. You know, he wanted to be head coach, he wanted to take that next step, but until George Hallis retired, he was stuck, at least while he was with the Bears. So... He kind of went shopping around a little bit, and he was talking with uh, Dan Reeves, who owned the Rams. And Dan Reeves hired him to be the head coach of the Rams in 1966. When George Hallis heard that Allen was going to the Rams, he was furious. He actually sued George Allen for a breach of contract. Hmm. 
and George Hallis won the lawsuit. And as soon as George Hallis won the lawsuit, he voided the contract. <laughs> so, he, <laughs> so he just fired George Allen. So he was just obviously just making a point, right? Yeah. That it's, you can't quit because you're fired. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, you can't legally quit. Now you're fired. Go coach for the Rams. <laughs> so George Allen went to the Rams. Um, Vince Lombardi actually said to Dan Reeves when he kind of heard how angry George Hallis was. So this is the quote. It sounds like you got yourself a hell of a coach. <laughs> uh, George Allen went to the Rams. And George Allen was kind of what modern coaches are now. He was the first coach to be look like what a modern coach looks like nowadays. Um, so he kind of combined all these ideas from like these great head coaches that come before him. So something that Paul Brown brought into the league was his really strict offseason, like training camps and preparation and schedule. You know, George Allen would do that. Vince Lombardi was, you know, super into detailed, like, plays. You know, you step here, you know, block here, do all this stuff. George Allen did that. Sid Gilman, who used to be the coach of the Rams, was obsessive over his film study. George Allen did that. Like, George Allen would work 16-hour days. I mean, his assistant coaches thought he was taking naps instead of watching film. (laughs) You know, just to, like, prove a point to them or something. But he was watching film. Um, He would work. He was so focused on his work, he would eat, like, ice cream or peanut butter for some meals just because they were easier to eat. And he could work easier while he was eating. Wow. He was also one of the first coaches to really put an emphasis on special teams. You know, he knew that special teams wasn't just something that teams needed to do. It was something that you could really start to be like good at and get advantages in football games by mm-hmm. having good special teams. And even like during his practices, like his attention to detail and the things he would do to help gain that advantage over the other teams was just crazy. Like one week they were facing a left-footed punter for that in the game that week, so he hired a left-footed punter just for that week <laughs> to practice with him. Wow! There was one week where he would practice only at a certain time of day because that's where the sun would be when they played on Sunday, just so that they'd be practicing the same like sun conditions. So it was he was just obsessed with coaching and doing everything he could to get that winning edge over other coaches. So he coached for the Rams. So in the year before Allen was hired, the Rams went 4-10. and The next year they went 8-6, and and the next year they went 11-1-2, and and George Allen was named Coach of the Year for the first time. Wow. He wasn't the first Coach of the Year, but that was his first time winning mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, the Rams' defense, so again, George Allen was defense-oriented because that's where he learned you know, came up through the NFL. Um, the Rams defense, they had a defensive line called the Fearsome Foursome. Uh, the four players were Deacon Jones, Lamar Lundy, Merlin Olsen, and Rosie Greer. And they would just terrorize, you know, the opposing offenses. And then they would just do like really basic ball control offense to just score a few points a game. And that's how they would win. After George Allen won coach of the year, the team went 10-3-1 the next season. 
the worst, the least amount of wins he's gotten so far as a coach is eight wins, which isn't bad because they were in a fourteen game season, so he's still above five hundred. Um, but after the nineteen sixty eight season, when they went ten three and one, Dan Reeves fired George Allen. So even though he was being super successful, Dan Reeves basically said that winning with George Allen was worse than losing with a different coach. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, he did not like the ball control, offense, smothering defense type of play. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't fun. And so he just wanted to get rid of George Allen. But the players actually, like, threatened to all quit and resign if George Allen oh. wasn't the coach. So a week after Dan Reeves had fired George Allen, he said, never mind, he's coming back. <laughs> <laughs> so George Allen stayed for another two years with the Rams. Over the next two years, he went twenty-seven and one. Twenty-seven wow. and one. Wow. So twenty wins, seven losses, one tie. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds oh, like okay. Yeah. Okay. Twenty wins, seven losses, one tie. But okay. still, that's ten wins a year. That's still very yeah. good. Yeah. Ten wins. Ten wins a year in fourteen game seasons. So. That's really, I mean, it's good. Dan Reeves, after the 1970 season, fired George Allen and stuck to his guns this time. George Allen was gone. <laughs> so after he was fired by the Rams, after the 1970 season, he uh, was actually really coveted around the league because he had been so successful with the Rams. The team that ended up hiring him was the Washington Redskins. They had only had four winning seasons over the last 30 plus years no sorry 20 plus years so they were not very successful um so they're excited to bring him in you know even though dan reeves had said that winning with george allen is you know not as fun as just losing with another coach Mm -hmm. washington's like well we don't care how fun it is we just need to win some games (laughs) (laughs) um in his first year with the with washington he went nine, four, and one, and he won Coach of the Year for the second time. So it was nineteen seventy one. Went to the playoffs, lost in the first round. He actually went to the playoffs quite a few times with the Rams, twice. Sorry, not quite a few. Twice with the twice in five years, with the Rams. He lost both times uh, in the first round. Then in nineteen seventy two, he they were successful. The uh, Washington was successful again. They went eleven and three. Went to the playoffs, won the next two games, and actually went to the Super Bowl. Um, Unfortunately for them, you can call it destiny or fate, but they were going up against the Miami Dolphins, who at that point were 16-0, and were trying to have a perfect season by winning the Super Bowl. And sure enough, they weren't going to be stopped, and Washington did not win the Super Bowl. The Dolphins did. Uh, that's a different story for a different episode. But after the D- Super Bowl loss to the Dolphins, George Allen stuck around for another five years, went to the playoffs three more times, and again lost in the first round each time. So every year except that he went to the playoffs, except for the Super Bowl year, he lost in the first round of the playoffs. So they only won a Dang. Super Bowl game in that one season, or a playoff game in that one season. Which right. is kind of weird, but so after the nineteen seventy season, nineteen seventy seven season, 
he was fired by Washington. He was hired by the Rams again, so he went back. He stuck around for about two preseason games, and then he was fired. Uh, the new owner of the Rams, Carol Rosenblum. Uh, George Allen wanted a lot of power in terms of personnel, but Carol Rosenblum just didn't feel like he fit the culture, culture so he just fired him after two preseason games. Hmm. And that was actually the end of George Allen's NFL career. But one of his philosophies, I guess, that I didn't talk about but before, was his, his famous saying was, the future is now. And that was something he kind of, you know, brought into the two teams that he coached, the Rams and, the, and Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, and by that, he what he would do is he would trade away all their draft picks, all their rookies, all their young players, and just bring in veterans. Interesting. To, to put it in perspective, he was with the Rams for five years. He made 50 trades in five Holy years. Cow. That's 10 trades a year. That's insane. I mean, nowadays when trading is, you know, more popular than it has been in a very, you know, ever, nobody makes 10 trades in one year. No. When he was with Washington for eight years, he made 80 trades. So again, oh my gosh. 10 trades a year. And the reason he'd bring in the, bring in the veterans is because his philosophy was, you know, if you're betting on the draft picks and the rookies, you're a gambling man. It might pay off and it might not. But if you're betting on the veterans, you know what you're getting. And if you get the right players, it'll always pay off. So he considered it not gambling, right? Not being risky mm-hmm. when he went for the veterans. Ended up costing ended up costing him because, you know, his payroll for all the veterans kind of grew out of control and they really the teams that he was on that he was coaching never had like first, second, third round picks ever because he just traded away traded away all the draft picks. <laughs> I think he had one second round pick with the Rams wow. in the five years he was there. Wow. So after he was fired by Washington in nineteen seventy seven, um, like I said, that was the end of his coaching career in the NFL. In nineteen eighty one he asked George Hallis for the head coaching job for the Bears because it was open at the time. George Hallis was still the owner, but not the head coach anymore. But George Hallis is still really bitter about how things ended. <laughs> and so he didn't get the job to him. Um, and so for another couple of years, he was out of a job. But in 1983, a different football league started up called the USFL. And George Allen was a head coach for the USFL. He coached for the Chicago Blitz. He was pretty successful with the Chicago Blitz. Uh, won 12 out of 18 games. Went to the playoffs. Lost in the first round. Like usual. Wow. Uh, the next year, this is again another story for another day, but uh, the Chicago Blitz and the Arizona Wranglers, the Arizona Wranglers were, were another team in the USFL. Uh, like switched franchises. So the entire team and coaching staff from Arizona went to Chicago and vice versa. So George Allen was coaching in the second year of the USFL, the Arizona Wranglers, even though it's still the same team, different name. Interesting. 
They won 10 games that year of 18, so they went 10 and 8. Uh, he actually went to USFL Championship that year, but lost in the USFL Championship. And uh, he didn't coach in the USFL, USFL anymore. The USFL went under. They don't exist anymore. And to finish out his career, a few years later, he was coaching at Long Beach State. So this was in 1990. Uh, he coached there for one year, just had a 6-5 and five record. And he actually died right after the season ended. A lot of people, like football fans, actually found out as they were watching like college games on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. Um, you know, they would announce it during the game. And that's kind of fitting, you know. Football was really his whole life, and so to have, you know, his death be announced, you know, in a football game was kind of poetic almost. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was George Allen's life. So like I said, um, he never won a Super Bowl, but he never had a losing season, so he was always above five hundred. He really brought around the prototype for the hardworking, obsessive coach. He had that f- the future is now mentality. You know, he really just helped change the mindset for coaches you know in the future like now you know you hear coaches working 80 hour weeks and it's just normal i mean that's not normal but it's normal for nfl coaches yeah. <laughs> you know george allen was really the one who started that so not as well known of a coach in NFL history but definitely important i think yeah. not a lot of coaches that can say they're over 500 every season that they coached. Right. And like I said, the third best winning percentage in the Hall of Fame right yeah. now. So yeah, it's impressive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just unfortunate that he was never able to win that Super Bowl. Yeah. Yeah. Or even the USFL championship. Yeah. But still, you know, very successful. Yeah. So that's it for George Allen. So let's go ahead and move on to the next person in our biography episode, Jim McMahon. So, Tony, why don't you take that away? Yes. So, I think probably most people heard of Jim McMahon. Um, and he's he's known for a few things, like drinking. And um, he has always had kind of a crazy attitude. But on pretty much any team he started, mainly in college and the pros, here we'll talk about He's what really made the team go, what made the team tick. And that was from his play, but also his leadership. So to start when he was, so he was born in California, um, but we kind of have to start when he was six here. He was playing um, Cowboys and Indians, he says, with his brother and some friends or whatever. And he had a knot tied to his gun. And he decided to try to untie that knot with a fork. What? Yes, yeah, just like using a fork to like pick at it. And uh, but anyway, he was doing this, and he was like trying to pull on it, and he ended up stabbing his eye. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! And so he severed his cornea, <laughs> but his parents they got him to a doctor really quickly. And he said they probably saved they saved his vision uh, for the most part, and probably pretty much saved his whole eye. Oh my gosh! But wow. uh, since then he's been he's been super sensitive to light, so that's why he's wears sunglasses like all the time. Huh? Interesting. That's why you kind of that's why you've always seen him with sunglasses. But 
kind of a crazy story. Stab yourself in the eye with a fork. Yeah. But anyway, he so he grew up in San Jose, California until about after his sophomore year, he moved to Roy, Utah and played his and went to school for his junior and senior year at Roy High School. And after that, he was choosing where to go to college and his parents had a pretty big input and they pushed him towards BYU because it is they thought it kind of helped straighten him out and keep him going in the right direction because <laughs> like I said he was a partier he liked to drink and have a good time and things and he still did a lot of that at BYU um and it's probably a good thing there wasn't social media because you are not supposed to drink at BYU. And <laughs> had there been social media and things like that to report him, there's a good chance he would have been expelled or kicked off the football team or whatever. But So he didn't really fit with the culture of the school, Yeah. but he did fit with the culture of the offense. So this offense was in – it was in the 1980s. They passed, 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 passed. Like kind of like Mike Leach's offenses uh, today, which for the 1980s and stuff, that's not super common yeah. to be just passing all the time. But that's what BYU did. So for his freshman season, he actually punted. He didn't play quarterback at all this season, but he was the starting punter. Okay. And he also played baseball at this. Uh, in his freshman year. And then his sophomore year, about the third game of the season, midway through, their starter, Mark Wilson, got injured. And so he came in. He didn't punt after that. Um, and once Mark Wilson actually came back, he just, like, split time with him. So they were, like, doing a thing where he'd play half of the time and Mark Wilson would play half the time. Yeah, But McMahon did end up earning all WAC honors, which WAC is the conference they played in at the time, the Western Athletic Conference. So he still had a re- really good season. However, near the end of the season, he got hurt. And this is a pattern throughout his career. He never played a full 16-game season in the NFL. He missed time in part of his senior season. and that was because of the way he played. He did not take care of himself at all. He, uh, Mike Dick, uh, who coaches him, coached him in the NFL, we'll get to that. He said he played with reckless abandon and that he definitely shortened his career by the way he played. Dang. So he ends up missing a lot of time being hurt and just kind of playing crazy. But that's how that's how he played. And Mike Dick has said there was really no point to trying to change him because it would probably ruin him. He wouldn't be as good, so he never attempted to try to make him safer or play safer. Right. But so he was injured and ended up missing the next season. BYU just redshirted him, so he was still had his junior year. Um, and then that season, Mark Wilson ended up setting nine NCAA records, was a consensus first-team All-American, and finished third in Heisman voting. So he wasn't a bad quarterback himself. But he graduated after that year. And so McMahon takes over his junior season, and BYU loses its, 
the first game he starts that year, they lost by two points to New Mexico, and it was a pretty big upset. Uh, but then they didn't lose after that in the regular season. They end up going 11-1. and They win the WAC championship. And then he also sets the NCAA record for passing yards and passing touchdowns. Wow. Which wow. he had 40, th- or 4,571 yards and 47 touchdowns. Wow, that's incredible. Nice. <laughs> yeah, and so that's pretty crazy for back then, and it was only 12 games he played. And they won most games by a lot of points. So they would take him out in like the fourth quarters or when the game was over, basically. So of those 12 games, he only finished and played all the way through three of them. So his stats could have been even larger, and they didn't uh, include bowl game stats back then into your overall. So his bowl game, which we'll talk about here in just a second, did not get included. But his best game that season came against Utah State. He passed for 485 yards, passed for six touchdowns, and wow. rushed for two. Oh, my gosh. Wow. And so that week, Sports Illustrated named him their national player of the week. And so that was a great game. Then, so now we get to the bowl game that year. So the BYU played in the Holiday Bowl. And back then it wasn't as common to make a bowl game as it is now. Right. And so BYU before it only ever played in four bowl games. The 1974 Fiesta Bowl, 1976 Tangerine Bowl, and then the first two Holiday Bowls in the two years prior in 1978 and 1979. And they'd lost all of them. (laughs) So this year they were playing SMU, which is another story that we could talk about but smu had a very good team they had a pair of running backs craig james and eric dickerson Mm. which i'm sure most people have heard Mm. of eric dickerson but the pony express the pony express offense yes they were they ran it a lot but both of those running backs were great and they were very hard to stop they played in at the time the toughest conference which was the southwest conference and so, I mean, they were a good team. And with four minutes left in this game, they scored a touchdown and were up 45-25. to 25. So they were had a pretty commanding lead. And You said there was four minutes left? Four minutes left in the game. Up by 20? Up by 20 points. And so a lot of BYU fans started leaving, and Jim McMahon took notice of this, and he yelled at them. that the game wasn't over. He started yelling at him, the game's not over. And that next drive, they ended up getting to about midfield and had a fourth down and two. And Lavelle Edwards, the BYU coach at that time, a legendary coach for BYU, he sends on the punting team. Oh. (laughs) And McMahon said just waved him off the field and said no we're not doing that waves him off and they ended up calling a timeout to not take a delay of game but then uh jim mcmahon came over to the sideline and basically started ripping into his coach (laughs) and accused him like you're giving up that's bs and yelling at him like that and so lavelle edwards lets him go for it they convert and then they score a touchdown so then, now they have to try an onside kick. There's not much time left. 
the onside kick and they get the onside kick. And so they move down the field quickly, get to the one-yard line, give it to their running back, he scores. And now so the it's 45-39. to 39. So just a six-point game. Right. They try an onside kick again, but they don't get it. Ugh. So now SMU has the ball, but BYU does hold them to punt. But now they're punting, which is like 20 seconds left. And they onside right. it, so they're already about midfield or so. And BYU blocks this punt. With They get the ball back with 13 seconds. Wow. And so Jim McMahon now has a chance to win this game. Uh, not very much time. 41 yards to go. He starts with two incomplete passes. And so now they're down to their last play. And he throws up a Hail Mary. And you can probably guess how it ends, but their tight end, Clay Brown, caught it uh, with four SMU defenders around him. <laughs> wow. And so they kick the extra point and they win the game 46 to 45. Wow. wow. So they ended up scoring 21 points in the last two minutes and 33 seconds. McMahon had 446 yards, although he split the MVP honors with uh, Craig James from SMU, which is a little silly, but that's <laughs> all right. Um, but the... What's another thing that's kind of crazy is if you look at the ending statistics here, SMU had 25 first downs and 446 yards. BYU had 23 first downs and 444 yards. So uh, it was a super even game Yeah. Um, in terms of yardage and things, but BYU came overcame a pretty incredible deficit, and it's remembered as one of the best comebacks in NCAA history. And, I mean... In football history it's not talked about a ton but it's it was an amazing game and an amazing comeback yeah yeah so then his senior year he ends up he misses two games but he passes for 3555 yards and 30 touchdowns and they again win the WAC championship he is the WAC player of the year first team all-american and finished third in Heisman voting which that year Marcus Allen from USC won, and second was Herschel Walker from Georgia. So not not too bad to lose to those guys. And he did beat out Dan Marino, who finished fourth in voting. Wow. And then he also won the Davey O'Brien Award, which is for the best quarterback. Uh, that year, BYU goes back to the Holiday Bowl, and they win again, beating Washington State. He passes for 342 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, he was inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame in 1999. And he did not finish all his coursework and stuff at BYU. So he wasn't eligible to be in their Hall of Fame. But he decided to go back in 2010 and finish up what he needed to left to get his degree and graduate. And that qualified him to be inducted into BYU's Hall of Fame which he was at ha a halftime of a game in 2014 against Utah State. And he, they uh, retired his number nine jersey. But yeah, that's it for the for college. He was leaving college. He, I mean, he was one of the best quarterbacks 
that had played with his passing numbers and his wins and things. So, And this wasn't a time when quarterbacks pass as much as today, but he did some really great things in college. And that led to him being selected fifth overall by the Bears, which he, here's where we overlap again. Uh, he has a, I think probably maybe a lot of people have heard this, but he had brought a beer to his first press conference. He was expecting to have a more laid back environment than BYU. But George Hallis and Mike Dicka did not like this. They were not happy about that. And that just kind of sp- speaks to his relationship with Mike Dicka. It wasn't, it was a working relationship. They clashed all the time. Mike Dicka kind of ran through a lot of quarterbacks before because he was very hard on his quarterbacks. He threw temper tantrums and yelled at them and called them names. Right. But uh, Jim McMahon knew how to deal with it. He didn't really take it, and he gave it s- some advice to his backup quarterback that said, if Mike Dick ever gets in your face like that, you just have to look him in the eyes and tell him to go F himself. <laughs> and said so that usually worked. So <laughs> He earned the starting job as a rookie. He won the NFC Rookie of the Year. He didn't win the NFL Rookie of the Year because Marcus Allen... Uh, with the Raiders won that one. But before he got drafted, the offense, and even after he got drafted, the offense ran through Walter Payton. But before he got drafted, it was run with Walter Payton twice, and if it was third down, pray the quarterback could complete a pass, which a lot of times did not happen. So he added another element to that offense that they really needed to be successful in the passing game. So moving into his second year, this is when he really started like coming into it and being more confident. He started changing a lot of the plays at the line, which Mike Dicka didn't really like, but he had a very instinctive feel for the game. So a lot of times he would change the play, and a lot of, most of the times it was right. A tight end told a story about him uh, audibling a play because the defense was blitzing, and the way the tight end knew they were blitzing because the safety creeped up but even before that McMahon had audibled and he asked him after how he knew and McMahon said I just saw it in his eyes I knew he was blitzing what (laughs) and so that just kind of shows you what kind of player he was he just had a really intuitive kind of crazy feel for the game and he was also their emergency punter. Like I said, they, he punted in college. And so he punted twice in his NFL career uh, for an average of 48 yards, which isn't bad. bad. Yeah, that's not bad. And that second year, they missed the playoffs and the division title by just one game. So it was a pretty good year for him, but not quite as good as they wanted. But things were looking good going into the 1984 season. And this year, they actually reached the conference championship. They end up losing to the 49ers, and that was likely because McMahon suffered a season-ending injury late in the season. He had gotten hit, broken some ribs, and lacerated a kidney. And the play after that happened, he gets up and goes to the huddle. He's hobbling, but he gets up and goes to the huddle and tries to call the play. He had to call it a couple times because they couldn't hear him because he... Had, well, couldn't really talk. He had a lacerated kidney, but then goes to the line and tries to make an audible 
and the receivers obviously cannot can't hear him. And so he ends up calling a timeout and they take him off the field and he goes to the locker room and they said he went to the locker room and had to use the bathroom right when he got in uh, and then came back and told the trainers that his urine looked like grape juice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so not great, but he ends up recovering from that to get back by the 1985 season. But after that 84 season, or, well, not after, but looking back on the 84 season, Walter Payton said he thinks had Jim McMahon not gotten hurt, they could have won the NFC Championship and got to the Super Bowl that year. Hmm. Now, it's 1985 season. I think most people have heard of the 85 Bears, and there's a reason. It's because they were great. They end <laughs> up going 15-1. and one. Their only loss is to Dan Marino on Monday night. And this was one of... Jimmy McMahon's healthiest seasons. He plays in 13 of 16 games. And the reason he missed some games was because he had a neck injury. They ended up having to go to the hospital for a night with. But the game he gets back, he'd missed practice time, so he wasn't the starter. And it was against the Vikings. But all week and during that game, he'd been lobbying to get himself in to play. And Mike Dicka finally let him in in the third quarter, midway through. And the Bears were trailing 17-9. to But as soon as he gets in, first play, he throws a 70-yard touchdown pass. <laughs> there you go. Then the Bears get an interception, and he comes in for the next drive. First play, throws a 25-yard touchdown pass. So he's played two plays and thrown 95 yards and two touchdowns. Wow. The next drive, they get the ball back. He leads them down and throws a 43-yard touchdown and the and the bears ended up winning that game 33 to 24. Huh. So he was he was a player the bears needed in both leadership and play at quarterback especially when they had as good of a defense that they did. And in the playoffs this is where I haven't talked about too much of his kind of fun attitude but in the playoffs here that year he wears he always wore his headbands and this game he wore a headband that said adidas which the nfl did not like because adidas was not one of their sponsors (laughs) so pete rizel like we we talked about him a little bit before in some of our merger episodes he finds him five thousand dollars for it and i mean nobody likes to get fined obviously and but the next week to kind of make fun of the situation uh jim mcmahon wore a headband that just said Rizel on it. <laughs> Which Pete Rizel thought it was hilarious. He said he did not he still did not rescind the fine he'd given, but he thought it was really funny, so that was good. And in the that game, the NFC championship, he part of this reckless play, he never slid feet first. He always dove head first. And he dove headfirst on a play huh. and got hit by a defender on his backside, his helmet into Jim McMahon's backside, and left a pretty bad bruise, which McMahon insisted to having acupuncture on to help heal, make it feel better. Right. And the Bears didn't want his acupuncture guy traveling with them to the Super Bowl and stuff, but Jim McMahon basically said, no, he's going to travel with us. So... They let him. And this Super Bowl was in New Orleans, but at one of the practices, reporters kept asking about the injury. 
And McMahon got a little annoyed, so he just turned around and mooned him just to show <laughs> him how it was going. Nice. And he ends up, there's a little more controversy with some reporters here. They A reporter said that he called the women of New Orleans sluts. Huh. And Jim McMahon denies this, obviously. And he denies it because he did not. And the reporter eventually says that he lied, that he'd made it up to like try to get a story. Oh, man. And But McMahon got a lot of hate for that and said... And he said that at practice that he'd received like death threats and stuff. Yep. And at practice he wore a different number jersey. But the good thing is, is Mike Dick, uh, I was asked during these press conferences leading up to the Super Bowl about McMahon's attitude, and he said it was a good thing he thought because it loosened up the team. And I don't think he can receive all the credit, but maybe his loosening up of the team helped them win this game. They won. 46 to 10. It's one of the largest blowouts in Super Bowl history. He passed for 256 yards and rushed for two touchdowns. And after the game, he said he was pleased with how the game went and he was happy they won. But the whole rest of the Super Bowl and leading up to it and the event and all that was just a pain. Yeah. But unfortunately, after that, he only played the next three years with the Bears. He only played in 21 of 48 games. So that just is going back to how much he was injured. And they still had a few successful seasons, but was never they were never really had a great shot at Super Bowls without him under center. Yeah. But while he was healthy and while he was with the Bears, he was great. Um, he was traded after those three years, but he ended with a 46-15 and 15 record as the Bears starter. And Mike Dicka said without him, they had no chance to win the Super Bowl. Even with as great of a defense as they had, and Walter Payton said without Jim McMahon, they don't win, period. Wow. And so some very high praise from a coach that he kind of butted heads with. But he ends up getting traded to San Diego. He doesn't have a great year. He then goes to Philly. He actually played for Philly in 1991 uh, and went 8-3 and in the games he played, so not bad. He played in Minnesota a couple years later, went 8-4 and four in the games he played, played in Arizona for a year, but didn't play any games, um, and then finished his career with the last two years with Green Bay, backing up Brett Favre. Hmm. And Green Bay, the last year of his career in 1996, uh, Green Bay won a Super Bowl, so he got a second Super Bowl ring, which sat behind Brett Favre for that, but nice. I'm sure he's not upset about it. And a lot of people kind of compared the way he played to how Brett Favre played, just kind of reckless and just going for it. But the difference was Brett Favre didn't get hurt. Right. And he, yeah. I mean, I mean, he got hurt, but I should say he didn't get injured. And he had that Iron Man streak for a long time, of course, so... Yeah, that was his career. He retires after that, and he has struggled with a lot of concussion-related injuries in his retirement, and just a lot of injuries and things in general. He's had a lot of... He he still goes uh, three or four times a year, I think, and gets uh, his like neck and spine readjusted. And he was one of the first players to start... Uh, kind of lobbying the NFL to get them to care more about concussion-related injuries and caring for players after they'd retired. That's good. And so that was 
kind of part of his legacy as well. But then this is kind of a funny story here. But he, like I said, like I said, he liked all sports. Oh well, before I move on to this, he did say after with all these injuries that he'd wish he just played baseball because <laughs> that was really his first love as a sport. Interesting. Um, he said he didn't necessarily regret playing but football, but he wished he just played baseball and kept himself pretty healthy. But like I said, he enjoyed all sports, and that include golf, included golf. And there's a couple, two funny golfing stories here. So the first one just kind of shows his personality. He was invited to the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic, his charity golfing event, and it's pretty prestigious to get an invite. And he was playing with Lawrence Taylor. <laughs> and Lawrence Taylor was, uh, he took golf pretty seriously. He was a pretty good amateur golfer. And he shows up to the golf course with slacks, a nice shirt, golfing shoes, a visor hat, just looking like an actual golfer, a real professional. Yeah. And Jim McMahon wore shorts, mirrored sunglasses, and had a open can of beer and was in bare feet. He didn't have any shoes. What? <laughs> Which some people weren't very big fans of that at the golf course and reporters and people that really cared about golf, but right. that was Jim McMahon. And <laughs> the other one, he uh, he golfed with Michael Jordan. And something of note about Jim McMahon is, of course, back then the salaries weren't the same as they are now, but even he didn't ever have didn't ever make as much money as some of the other quarterbacks in the league at the time, like Dan Marino and things, because his stats didn't really show besides his win loss, his stats, his passing numbers didn't really warrant a great contract. And then his injury, he just really didn't have any leverage. So Mm -hmm. he wasn't, he still made good money, but didn't make a crazy amount of money. And he was golfing with Michael Jordan and they had bet on the front nine, they had bet $100 a hole. And Jim McMahon was playing really good and was up like seven holes to two or eight holes to <laughs> one or something. And the back nine, Michael Jordan goes, which, you know, this is kind of Michael Jordan's story too. Michael Jordan goes, I'll play you on the back nine for a million dollars. Oh my gosh. And Jim McMahon thought about it for a second and then he said, Well, I really want to say yes because of how I'm playing, but. I say yes, then I lose, and my kids don't go to college. So, <laughs> he said no, but yeah, that's that's really a, one of uh, the greatest characters the NFL's had. There's probably a thousand other stories you can find on him, but yeah, he was remember he's remembered as a great character, but he should also be remembered as a great quarterback for when he was healthy and when he was on the field. Because without McMahon, the Bears aren't Bears probably don't win that Super Bowl. And unfortunately, had he stayed healthy, they probably could have won more. But that's the game of football. So yeah, sure. yeah, Jim McMahon's definitely a underrated player, I think, because that defense really got all the publicity for yeah. the Bears at the time. Definitely. So now let's move on to our last biography of the episode, uh, Carl Banks. So Marcus, why don't you take it away? He was a linebacker for the New York Giants. Um, He was born in Flint, Michigan in August of 1962 and grew up there his whole life. And one thing that uh, he was kind of known for throughout his career was his fundamentals and how soundly he tackled. 
and in a podcast he kind of attributed that to his football coach when he was nine because the coach basically just instilled the fear in all the players that if they ever tackled wrong, that they would break their necks. Oh my god! Oh. So he kind of, yeah. Jeez. So he kind of just lived with this fear that if he ever tackled wrong, that he'd break his neck. So he was always really fundamentally sound and made good tackles because of that. So that was kind of a cool story. Um, when he grew up, he was a multi-sport athlete. He played basketball and football, but he kind of preferred basketball over football. And played it in high school. Um, he played center and kind of forward a little bit. And his coach told him that he would have a better shot at making a career out of football than basketball. Because if you're in the, if you're a professional basketball player as a center, you're probably not going to be six five. You need to be taller. Mm. And so he decided to go pursue football a little bit more than he was. And he switched over from, he was playing offensive line and defensive line, but he switched over to play linebacker so he could be more of a highlight player and have more of a chance, I guess, to make it into the professionals and be a professional football player, right? Right. And so he actually was really good at linebacker, and after senior year of high school, he was like really recruited heavily, had some offers from some big schools, some dominant schools like Oklahoma and Ohio State. Um, but he actually decided to go with Michigan State, who at the time was like not good at all. Their program was not winning and like wasn't a very notable program. Um, but the reason he decided to go there was because Magic Johnson told him to go there. <laughs> yeah. Got a personal recommendation, said all so right. So he he met Magic Johnson at a basketball camp a basketball camp a couple of years earlier and kinda of just stayed in touch with him and so Magic Johnson went to Michigan State and he just told him to go there because the people were good and he'd have a fun time. And so he went to Michigan State. Huh. And like I said, their football program was not very good at all. And so he really didn't win a lot of games. But he was kind of the star there and all his years there he was an all-american he made the big 10 first team all three years he was there and just you know was the star of michigan state um but because they weren't like a very big school at all he didn't get a lot of like national publicity right so like back then you didn't have like the espn app on your phone so like the rankings would come out in a magazine like quarterly like every four months And he was, like, never on the top 100, but he kind of, like, kept notes of who were on the top 100. But he never saw his own name. So after his senior year, he didn't get, like, an invite to the Senior Bowl. He didn't get invited to the Combine or, like, any other bowl games. So he was kind of disappointed because, you know, he wasn't going to be able to get his, his name out there. But his coach told him that there was one game that he could go play in. It was called the Blue and Gray game, and it was played on Christmas Day. But his coach said basically guaranteed him that if he goes and you play in this game, you have a good game, I guarantee you'll come back and you'll have invites to Senior Bowl and the Combine and all that. So he goes to this, yeah, so he goes to this game, plays really good, wins MVP of the game. Oh, there you go. Before he can even get back home to Flint, Michigan, 
he walks into his coach's office and there's already like five or six letters on his desk that are inviting him to the senior bowl <laughs> to the nfl wow. combine to the hula bowl in hawaii so he has all these offers he's gonna go to all these games now and kind of show who he really is um i couldn't really find a lot on how he performed in like the senior bowl and the hula bowl i would assume not terrible but I couldn't really find anything notable. I don't think he won MVP or anything. <laughs> um, but so he goes to the, the draft combine, and Bill Parcells kind of tells a cool story. So obviously three years, well, not obviously, but three years before he went into the draft, Lawrence Taylor was drafted by the New York Giants. And so Bill Parcells had kind of gained this reputation as like a really good scout for especially like defensive players and so coaches would kind of follow him around when he was at the combine and see who he was looking at and see who had talent and then they tried to draft them before the giants would (laughs) and so the first day bill parcells goes and he kind of sees carl banks and he kind of just looks at him for a minute and then he's like okay i gotta leave so he like goes the rest of the week at the combine and like doesn't even look at carl banks at all like He, like, looks at him, like, from a very far distance, but he, like, made it a point to make sure that absolutely nobody knew, like, that he was looking at him or thought he was good at all. Right. And so, at the Combine, I guess Carl Banks had, like, they do this, like, speed reaction test thing where they, like, see how fast your reflexes are. And I guess he scored the highest that anybody's ever scored on that. Wow. Wow. Yeah, and so the Cowboys are, like, intent on drafting him, and they really like this guy. But Cowboys didn't really have any idea that the Giants were going to try to draft him. So they kept that under wraps. So he ends up getting drafted number three overall by the Giants. Huh. Bill Parcells pulls the trigger, and he gets added to a defense that was already pretty elite. Obviously, Lawrence Taylor is there, Harry Carson, Brad Van Pelt. They kind of already... We're building the reputation and the nickname of the Big Blue Wrecking Crew. So he kind of gets thrown into the stack defense. And he walks in on the first day and Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson are sitting in the locker room talking. He walks up and introduces himself. And then to Lawrence Taylor and Harry Carson. And Harry Carson looks at him and says, I don't have the exact quote, but he basically said, I don't have any idea how you're going to get like on the field. You really have to prove yourself because this defense is already stacked. <laughs> right. Well, apparently he proved himself in training camp, made an immediate impact, and started all 16 games his rookie season. Wow. Uh, He only recorded three sacks, but had a lot of tackles and made a lot of big plays. Um, And then just kind of throughout his whole career, obviously he's kind of drowned out by Lawrence Taylor and his dominance. But a lot of times they would kind of run over to his side because Lawrence Taylor was just such an impact on that other side. And people quickly learned that you really couldn't run either way because wherever you went, either Carl Banks was going to make the tackle or Lawrence Taylor was going to make the tackle. (laughs) So 1986, he leads the Giants in tackles, has a a really good year, makes the Pro Bowl. Uh, And then in 1987, Giants go to the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 21. And he recorded 14 tackles in that game and was just just dominating the whole game. He didn't win Super Bowl MVP, though. 
Phil Simms actually won it, but a lot of people remember that game of how dominant he really was on defense and just the, like the offense wasn't able to do anything. They played the Broncos in that game and they scored, I think they scored zero points, if I remember right. Wow. Yeah. Uh, another thing that he was kind of remembered for was his toughness. So in 1990, in week four against the Cowboys, he breaks his wrist, like dislocates it, misses the rest of the game, and then the next week he asks his trainer if he can play, and his trainer goes, I can cast it up and make it so like you can't do any more damage. Obviously, it's not going to fix it, but you could play on it. Ooh. So he goes back, wow. he plays in one game, he has an okay game, he realizes that he's in a lot more pain than he thought he'd be, though. So he decides to get surgery, uh, and then he asks the doctor after the surgery, like, realistically, how long were you looking at until, like, I had recovered and ready to play? And the doctor told him about 18 months. And he said, oh, man. he said, I don't have 18 months to just sit around and do nothing. Like, I got to get back to playing. So he went back to the same trainer who put on the cast the first time and had him do the same thing. He casted up his arm so he wouldn't be able to really move it or do any more damage. And was back playing, I think, four five weeks later. Oh, my so God. He came, That's <laughs> crazy. Yeah, so he came back, played the rest of the season. He was still he was kind of limited because he couldn't use one of his hands, really. I mean, there's yeah. footage of him tackling, and he pretty much, like, tackles with his arm just, like, stuck straight out. So he, like, uses one arm and just keeps his other arm, like, away from contact. So they make it back to the Super Bowl in 1990, uh, Super Bowl 25, and they beat the Buffalo Bills 19-20, to which was one of the famous four falls of Buffalo when their kicker missed the game winning field goal. Uh, Carl Banks had another big game, once again in a win Super Bowl MVP though. It was just those two between Lawrence Taylor and Carl Banks, that defense was really hard to get anything done, especially running the ball because... Really, whatever way you went, one of them was there to make a big tackle, and they had a lot of tackles for losses. He also made the 1980s All-Decade Team, which was a big accomplishment. He only made it to one Pro Bowl, which was in 1987, which was the year he also made All-Pro. That was the year that he had nine and a half sacks, which was his career high, and he finished his career with 39 and a half total sacks. And he also was inducted into the New York Giants Ring of Honor later on in his career. Another cool factoid is during all of this, and I couldn't find an exact date, but in his second or third year in the NFL, he started his own like clothing business. It's called G3 Sports, and so it's like sports apparel. So he ran that while he was playing the NFL throughout his whole NFL career, and he actually still has that business today and still... Apparently, oh, it's wow. pretty successful. I've never heard of it, but it must be somewhat successful. Interesting. Now he's just, uh, he still is involved with the New York Giants. He's a, their radio voice for their games, their color commentator. So he still is very involved with the New York Giants. After, so he played with the Giants for until uh, 1993. And then he went over to the Washington Redskins for. A year, didn't do really anything big, and then went over to the Cleveland Browns, played for two years, and then retired in 1995. He he was pretty dominant player. He gets, but he just gets drowned out by the dominance of Lawrence Taylor, who's best defensive player of all time. So, 
thanks for sharing that marcus i hope that everyone enjoyed our biography episode i hope everyone liked learning about george allen and jim mcmahon and carl banks hopefully you did learn something throughout this episode that's it thanks for listening and tune in next time